everybody, and welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and I'm joined by Don, as usual. Today we have a very special guest, his first appearance on the show. Uh, he's known as Sean Moorhead on Twitter, and uh, he's going to be telling us about Shinto and probably other Japan-related things, because I think that's kind of his bag. So welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, so uh, I guess both Tom and I probably know very little about Shinto. Uh, yeah. And uh, um, we, we thought we would ask you a bit about it and uh, maybe start with sort of like a, a quick summary of what it involves, you know, what, what the very basics of the sort of belief system slash religion entail. Sure. And I, I should note, first of all, that I'm like – you know, I'm, I'm not a credentialed scholar or anything like that. And um, so anything I say, take with a grain of salt, because there's only so much you can really learn by pirating peer-reviewed journals. So, um, right. And you're not like a, a Shintoist or you're not a... Uh, um, or are, I don't not know, maybe as such. And in, in, in fact, like, I, I think that most people would, would assert that it's, it's rather difficult to be unless you're um, Japanese and living in Japan, although I, I think there are some uh, Shinto priests now of, of non-Japanese background. But the um, the basic irony... Well, okay, so Shinto means the way of the gods. And... Um, Already not like in this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, it, plural plural and singular are the same in uh, in Japanese. All right, so I'm back on board. Could, could be the way of God. Yeah, there we go. Uh, there, or the divine way. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's an agreeable compromise. Okay. But... The, the irony that's been observed a million times is that, you know, huge numbers of Japanese people participate in going to Shinto holy sites, shrines, um, buying, you know, protective amulets, things like that. Um, people will have new cars, new property, blessed by priests. And yet less than um, 5% of the Japanese population actually identifies as Shintoist. And uh, there, there have been a number of different reasons proposed for this. The simplest is that the the particular word that's been used since the Meiji era, which is like um, you know late uh, beginning beginning in the late nineteenth century, which I guess corresponds to the uh, late thirteenth century for you, Tom, <laughs> is um, the the word that they they adopted to translate religion was being used specifically referred to the question of whether to permit. Um, Christianity, and they adopted the word um, shugyo to refer to religion, which means something like membership in a sect. And so with Shinto, there isn't a particular, you know, it, it's not like unless you're a member of a what are the shrine fraternities, which are called ko, uh, you don't really have weekly obligations or daily prayers or a particular holy text that you're committing to memory or anything like that. And so there's, for a majority of people, unless they have... Um, you know, unless they come from a clerical family, it's like uh, debatable whether they would actually define themselves as um, devoted to Shinto. And then there's also some some recent scholarship by authors like Tim Fitzgerald and uh, Hori Mitsuo questioning just the applicability of the the Western idea of devotion or conversion to a Japanese context where you know, people are, are engaged in this kind of stuff. But as far as the things you can measure objectively, like, uh, you know, the belief in gods or ghosts or um, the number of people who purchase shrine amulets, actually, um, Japanese school children preparing for exams uh, 
tend to make offerings or, or buy amulets at shrines of uh, Tenman Tenjin, who was a deified form of the, uh, the scholar Sugawara no Michizane. And there's no reason necessarily to assume that all of this activity is, is completely sincere and unironic and expressive of like ardor mm-hmm. um, for, for religion because, you know, I, I think particularly for, for kids, it's, it's like a fun thing to do. And it, it isn't considered sacrilegious at all to use shrine sites as, um, you know, recreation. Uh, people go on dates or have picnics um, at shrines like the Heian Shrine in Kyoto, famously. That's nice. I like that. But yeah, it's 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 interesting because there there's actually been I think something of a crisis of confidence in western scholarship of the mystic orient in part because of the increasing number of scholars from the mystic orient who uh would prefer that you not call it that, which, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. reasonable. <laughs> um it, particularly there was a there was like a 1981 article in the journal of or Japanese journal of religious studies by uh, Kuroda Toshio questioning the entire you know, just basically the degree to which um, early Western scholars were sort of led around by the nose by erudite nationalist informants who were saying, you know, Shinto is this continuous tradition that stretches back to the dawn of history, and it it's in some sense cognate with, like, the national identity or even the racial unconscious of the Japanese. And, and the point that Kuroda made was that... Um, you know, really, it was it was substantially enveloped within Buddhist institutions. Um, there, the so-called uh, Shinbutsu um, Shugyo, or the the amalgamation of Buddhism and Shinto, and um, really assumed its most distinct form in the early modern period when they were trying somewhat self-consciously to create a state religion on a par with, like, uh, you know, like the Church of England or something like that, mm-hmm. because they were aspiring to be like a Western colonial power. Mm. But I think that recently scholars like John Breen and Mark Taywan have have argued, to my mind, pretty persuasively that there's been an overcorrection from Kuroda toward, you know, denying like basically any kind of continuity. And when when I was in school, it was not necessarily uncommon for people to say, oh, you know, there was never any such thing as Shinto until the early modern period, which I, I think is something of an overstatement. Mm hmm. Yeah, I guess I've heard similar things people say sometimes about like Hinduism and stuff like that, where there's right, they say right, there's some yeah. sort of relationship between sort of the colonial viewpoint and local practices that were disparate, but not necessarily a full religion or something like that kind of thing, or in Western kind of terms or something like that. So is, you know, what kind of practices and just even basic beliefs does uh, Shinto involve? Like, um, you, you kind of mentioned shrines and things like this, but like... Uh, you know, like what, what is the, like, what are the sort of key texts and things like that associated with them or, or uh, sort of like events? You know, it isn't, um, as far as texts, it's not a very literary religion. And I think one deficiency of early scholarship was that approaching things from a literary or a linguistic standpoint, um, you know, you had scholars who had not really spent a lot of time in Japan looking at ancient texts that, like the Nihon Shoki that in Japan were um, valued primarily as as like commentaries on poetics and things like that. Not that there hasn't been religious interest in those texts as well, but it's, as I, I said, not something a lay believer would read. And, you know, within these, as you said, sort of like disparate local traditions, um, you had a lot of secret documents um, transmitted from father to son or master to disciple, um, some of which are now available, like the Nakatome Hare Kunge um, is, is an attempt 
from some of the Waterai Issei shrine uh, specialists to sort of look at rituals of purification in, in Buddhist terms. But yeah, I, the, the the sort of cliche that I think is, um, there, there's perhaps something to it is that Shinto is concerned with purification. It's in the, in the Kojiki, the record of ancient matters, which is um, from the uh, early 8th century or early 2nd, Tom. Um, <laughs> there's, uh, you know, the deities um, Izanagi and Izanami no Mikoto give birth to um, the Japanese isles and um, these, these other gods embodying natural forces. And then Izanami no Mikoto um, gives birth to the god of fire and is, is burned to death. And so Izanagi pursues her to um, Yomi no Kuni, the land of, of shades, and finds her. She says, you know, I've, I've eaten at the hearth of the underworld. I can't, I can't return with you. And he, he sort of cajoles her and she agrees to accompany him on the condition that he not look back at her as they're, as they're processing out of the underworld. And he becomes impatient and turns around and sees her covered in, you know, maggots and putrefaction. And so she chases him out and they have a confrontation. He, he blocks the entrance to the underworld with a boulder. And on one side, she screams that every day she's going to kill a thousand Japanese people. And he says that every day, um, you know, he'll build 1,500 parturition huts for new Japanese people to be born. And so he goes to um, the river and cleanses himself and this is this is seen as sort of a prototype for all Shinto rituals, um, the uh, you know the use of pure water, and in fact from his from his cleansing of his face, you know from his right and his left eye and his nose, the the other major Japanese deities are born, like um, Amaterasu no Omikami, the goddess of the sun, who's the the sort of the the ancestor or the tutelary goddess of the imperial house. But for ordinary people, I think that, you know, if, if, you've, if you've read the book Silence by Endo Shusaku or seen the Japanese film by Shinoda Masahiro or the American film by Scorsese Martin, um, mm-hmm. there's, there's always been mm-hmm. this idea that Christianity didn't thrive in Japan because of the emphasis on uh, Genze Ryaku or this worldly benefits. Um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily considered undignified, as I said, to use shrines for recreation or to pray... Um, you know, for uh, commercial success. In fact, a lot of um, a lot of office buildings have shrines to the um, well. Originally, kind of a harvest god, but now I, I think a de facto mercantile god as well. Inari Okami. If you've if you've seen the photos of like the long lines of of red gates, uh, that's that's the primary Inari shrine in Fushimi. Um, so the, the the office buildings and things like that will have them on their roofs, and and you know and there are also a lot of shrines like I, at the Meiji Shrine, for example, um, commemorating the the late emperor. There's a uh, two two enormous I think camphor trees growing close together, and so people pray there uh, not to end up as Christmas cake. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I think Royal Tyler said something in his translation of. The Miracles of the Kasuga Deity, which is a, a Middle Ages text, he pointed out that the the idea of like being focused on this worldly benefits doesn't fully capture everything about Japanese religion because, um, particularly through the the sort of interface with esoteric Buddhism, there's this idea of what we might call in a Western context the other world or the overworld being 
like not only superimposed upon, but almost kind of identical with the ordinary world. At, at some point in the, the miracles of the Kasuga deity, the Kasuga deity tells someone that um, the physical path up his mountain, Mount Mikasa, you know, that you would, you would go up to practice uh, asceticism or, or whatever else is the same as the figurative path to enlightenment within Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me, I guess. I I mean, the thing with that argument about Christianity not really latching on because of this, uh, I mean, just look at Korea, you know, they are not, not averse to the same sorts of things, you know, and uh, Christianity has, uh, has gotten pretty big there. Right, and and really had to be stamped out pretty methodically in um, Japan. Besides which, it's I, I guess I don't see the the Shinto mode of worship as being that radically different from the sort of uh, peasant Christianity, where people were sure. effectively worshiping you know saints as deities for uh, you know material blessings or prosperity or good weather or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Um, in in relation to weather, though, I guess I should mention that the reason I asked to do it this uh, this session this particular week is that you know Thanksgiving on Thursday and then actually on Tuesday was one of the biggest Japanese festivals, which is I, I think now called Labor Thanksgiving Day or something like that. But it's been celebrated with some interruptions, probably for you know over a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Um, the Niname no Matsuri. And um, a few years ago, when the the new emperor assumed the throne, that's that's like the first um, the first niname of the imperial reign is a huge deal, and there was kind of a micro controversy related to um, you know the appropriation of public funds for for religious purposes. But uh, there's part of it involves the emperor on behalf of the sun goddess Amaterasu, the imperial ancestress. Um, consuming produce from that's been grown in different parts of Japan, and uh, there there are other details, particularly related to the Daijosai, the first the first Ninamai that he does when he ascends to the throne. There are details that are um, have have been kept extremely secret. It's it's been speculated that he somehow enacts um, the the actions of Takemi Musubi, who's the the uncreated, one of the uncreated creators in uh, Shinto cosmology. But I think that for ordinary people, it's, it's not necessarily the case that they would have um, a particularly like discursive understanding of what Shinto means or how it interfaces with Buddhism, because these practices have just coexisted with, you know, some degree of antagonism for so long. Like, I know that um, in many Japanese households, there's the the butsudan, the the altar where they enshrine um, the family dead, and um, the the dead are actually referred to as hotoke, meaning Buddhas, and yet the way they're described as is it, it clearly has um, very little to do with the Buddhist conception of of life and death. You're you're continually making offerings of uh, you know food and water to help their spirits progress toward what's called salvation, which sounds a little bit Buddhist, but um, effectively it's like, I I think you have to, after somebody dies, it differs depending on the region of the country, but uh, you know, you leave out these offerings for a deceased loved one for, it's often like 39 years after the death. 
And then after that, there's no longer an individual memorial tablet. They're incorporated into uh, what's called the senzo-sama, or the, the, you know, just the general category of ancestor. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, the, and I, I've never seen a lot of attempts to rationalize how that fits with the Buddhist view of uh, reincarnation, at least at least not at the folk level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so they have some practices about, I don't know if you call this funerary practices, but, you know, they have some kind of thing with the afterlife. Uh, they have stuff they do around that. Uh, what are some other major rituals or practices that characterize Shinto? Um, historically, during the uh, sort of the earliest period in which there was a an imperial bureaucracy modeled on the the Chinese Confucian bureaucracy, dedicated it was called the Jingi Khan or the Bureau of Divine Affairs. the The rituals that were important at that point were carried out uh, predominantly by the Nakatomi clan. And Naka meaning middle, so they're like, you know, the intermediaries between the gods and the man. They, they There are prayers in which they're described as being like a like a man who grasps a spear, not by the uh, blade or by the butt, but by the middle. Mm. Um, and, and so there was like the, uh, the Oharai, which um, was a cleansing of, you know, any, any source of pollution in the land. And it's interesting to see the the different categories of sins because what are described as the earthly sins are are things that i think we would we would consider to be very serious sins uh murder and rape and so forth but then the heavenly sins which one would assume would be even more severe are things like uh filling up agricultural dish, ditches um defecating in inappropriate places <laughs> things that were seen as injurious to um, you know, the life of an agricultural community. And in yeah. part, this is modeled on on some of the, uh, uh, you know, an early myth in which Amaterasu's brother, Susanoo no Mikoto, uh, sort of goes on a tear across the plain of high heaven and, um, yeah, you know, does those classic annoying little brother pranks like uh, uh, pooping in inappropriate places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, the, there's the, the category of sin also extends to a lot, or tsumi, I guess I should say is the Japanese word, but it extends to a lot of things that are effectively involuntary, like, um, you know, defecation, uh, sex, menstruation. And there, there was a sense that this, you know, these rituals were integral to the um, the preservation of the Japanese state to sort of sweep away all of the all of the pollution that accumulates just through ordinary life. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and what about the beliefs? You know, like, I, I understand that it's a little bit more difficult to say, like, oh, well, here's the official creed of Shinto right. or whatever. But, like, what, if we're speaking about this as a single thing, like, what are the kind of core definitional principles and, and uh, beliefs? I would say um, it's it's maybe easier to speak of um, common sets of deities or like constellations of deities, okay. um, although the regional forms differ a little bit. And then certain habits like, um, you know, when actually some of the oldest records we have of the Japanese from uh, Chinese visitors tell us that um, the Japanese uh, clap twice before praying, which continues to be the case. There's a... Uh, there are a couple of different ways you can do it, but I think the the one you see a lot is bow, bow, clap, clap, pray, and then bow again. I I, I think that uh, 
Alan Grappert made the argument that it's it's not so much that there isn't a Shinto ideology at all, is is that the ideology is realized through the the appreciation of particular spaces, and um, you know the the layout is seen as like I said, sort of almost corresponding to something more heavenly. Um, but particularly in the uh, well, okay. This is a little bit pedantic, but um, originally the the oldest use that we have of the term um, Shinto, which was at that time pronounced Jindo, is from uh, AD 720 or AH 101, when in the Nihon Shoki it refers to a particular emperor who revered the Buddhist way but um, denigrated Jindo, the way of the gods or the realm of the gods, by cutting down the trees at Ikukunitama Shrine. Um, and I, I think the subtext for this is that they may have been used to construct a Shitanoji temple. Oh, I, I guess I should say earlier, I should have said earlier, is that there, there's like a huge variety of terms for Shinto and Buddhist sacred sites, but the convention is that Shinto sites are referred to as shrines in English, and Buddhist sites are referred to as temples. So um, the it's, it's um, clear in these early texts that the term Jindo is one that was adopted from Chinese Buddhism referring to the realm of the gods as, you know, kind of like an obstacle to or, you know, an obstacle to the proliferation of the Buddhist Dharma or almost like an undesirable karmic destination. Because in, in Buddhist thinking, uh, the the emotional turmoil or passions and, and the, the fact that these gods can experience um, lust or anger or whatever else proves that they are in some sense subject to transience because in Buddhist thought the, uh, the the sort of emotional turmoil and the irrationality of an ordinary person throughout the day is not only analogous to but effectively identical with the process of reincarnation you're hmm. you know if you're capable of treating um, your friends kindly and your enemies poorly it's as though you've been reincarnated in different situations and and so um, in in that sense uh, you know, being a being a deity was not necessarily considered a desirable thing, and particularly toward the Middle Ages, there was there was this belief that um, Japan was going to face some kind of apocalyptic threat that the the um, House of Yamato would come to an end with the hundredth emperor. And around this time, you you see an interesting convergence between sort of Shinto Buddhist stuff that was happening. Um, in the countryside and in the, you know, in the capital. And in the capital, the form that it took was asserting basically that the, the Shinto deities, the kami, were the protectors of the, um, the Buddhist dharma, which is, you know, something of which Buddhism had been pretty accommodating in India and China and other settings. Um, the idea that, you know, your gods, your gods are real, but they, uh, they, need Buddhist instruction as well to relinquish passion. And simultaneously in the countryside, uh, there's an interesting phenomenon where deities begin to report through oracles that they want to be delivered from the state of divinity, since it's in Buddhist thinking, uh, you know, still a form of suffering or, or transience. Mm -hmm. And, um, it, it, of, of course, the, the humor in some of these stories stems from the fact that they announce their desire to become Buddhist in a way that seems much more characteristic of Shinto than Buddhist figures. Namely, they send Tatari or uh, 
curses, you know, plagues, epidemia, um, nightmares, things like that, to announce that they wish to be delivered of their divine state. And um, the the ideology that gets gradually cobbled together out of this is sometimes called Honji Suijaku, uh, which means basically origin and traces. Uh, Suijaku, um, the, the character Jaku meaning like print or impression or footprint. Um, the idea being that like uh, other other supernatural entities were like footprints left by these eternal uh, Buddhas, and uh, particularly the uh, through through Shingon esoteric Buddhism, there's this notion that um, the Buddha Dainichi Mahavairokana in in Sanskrit is essentially like identical with the substance of the universe. He's uh, all permeating, all sustaining. And so, um, you know, the historical Buddha or any local God could be a trace, a footprint of this bigger thing. And, uh, you know, it it gets pretty complicated as far as rationalizing, like which deities are um, traces of Buddhas and which ones are, are unenlightened, but protectors of the Buddhist Dharma and, um, you know, it, there, there's an interesting self-consciousness, I think, that comes with the peripheral status of Japan in the uh, Chinese-dominated world. There's a phrase you see in um, Heian period literature, uh, Mutsukashiki Hinomoto, or uh, Pitiful Little Japan. And then there's uh, another one, uh, Zokusan Hendo, which means a remote kingdom scattered like uh, grains of millet on the ocean. Uh, this sense of of being sort of outside of these these centers of, you know, philosophy and culture that were India and China. But um, gradually in the uh, Middle Ages, there's, there's a reconceptualization of the Japanese national identity as a Shinkoku, divine land, and uh, based in part around the pun um, Dai Nihongaku, which, er, Hongoku, excuse me, which can be understood to mean either... Um, the great country of Japan or the original country of the Buddha Dainichi. Um, and an increasing identification of even the sacred sites of, of sort of Indian legend with particular places in Japan. Uh, Myoe Shonen is a, a Buddhist monk. There's, there's a famous no play called um, the Kasuga Dragon God because he, he was planning, he always described himself as feeling like an orphan in Japan because he was so devoted to the person of the historical Buddha. Um, and, you know, was, was planning to undertake a trip to India, something that very few Japanese people had ever done. And the Kasuga deity, as the story goes, um, a Shinto god and also a, uh, you know, a protector of the, the Hoso lineage of Buddhism, inhabited a woman who was acquaintance of his and said, you know, look, you don't need to go to India because um, the Buddha preached the Four Noble Truths in the Deer Park at Varanasi and... But now we have a deer park right here at Kasuga. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, to this day, you can you can go and see these tame deer. And so um, he, he says, you know, the the all of these other sacred sites are incarnated here in the holy land of Japan. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's funny. Um, actually, it reminds me of uh, I was I was reading about uh, some Catholic saints the other day that were they were saying that like uh, I guess there was certain stories, but like. Uh, these uh, uh in india like two mm-hmm. saints that were attributed to the catholic church um and what they had done is uh um basically 
rewrote i'm not sure what the like retconned buddha basically yeah like uh and into uh two uh catholic saints and just took the stories basically and turned them into christian stories uh, of like two converts and uh um i thought that was a uh, very interesting i don't know like it, it, it's interesting how you have this interpenetration and stuff and and, and um so is there some sense in Japan that like uh you you had mentioned like the Jindo uh um like sort of this uh carryover from the Chinese tradition or something like that in ter- in sort of literary terms for the realm of the gods and all this but like w- is there some sense that like Shinto itself or like these beliefs in certain spirits and stuff was somehow either like the interpretive framework or just like the the beliefs themselves came from China or is it just uh, is it seen as like a indigenous religion all the way down basically well i mean the the nationalists of course wanted to see it as as purely indigenous and as i said sort of like embodying the the racial unconscious of the japanese people the yamato sure. people the wajin but yeah. um it, it's interesting and unfortunately the well is a little bit poisoned on this stuff because during the the period of empire when they they annexed uh Korea, there was there was a lot of research that was carried out, um, anthropological field work, field work on the similarities between um, you know Chinese and Korean and Japanese religion, and in part, I, you know, this this sort of notion of like, hey, you shouldn't resent us annexing Korea because we're we're cousins from way back. Sure. Yeah. And it's it's just kind of an unfortunate thing that there's not a lot of you know even even in Japan itself, my understanding is. My my access to Japanese scholarship is pretty limited, but my understanding is that um, since the end of the war, there's been more of an emphasis on like, uh, you know, like contrast between Shinto and and Western religions. That's something that's of interest to the Japanese as well. But it it seems as though there's perhaps more work to be done on the affinities with like, uh, well, for example, uh, the 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 Ainu ethnic minority in the north of Japan, their religion, or uh, Korean folk religion or Chinese folk religion. And and what's interesting, though, is that um, in the, the sort of tumult at the during the Bakumatsu period, when the Tokugawa shogunate was imploding, there were a number of new religious movements, uh, which are called somewhat misleadingly sect Shinto, um, Many of which were founded, or a number of which were founded by peasant women who suddenly had these these sort of awakenings or manifested healing powers. And what's interesting is that there are certain conventional aspects to their um, vocabularies, like uh, you know, they they suffered certain kinds of uh, head pains, or there's there's one woman who was uh, mistreated by her mother-in-law. The the mother-in-law, it was like she would she would get a new wife for her son twice a year for the busiest times of the agricultural calendar. And so this woman was the uh, the sixth to marry this man in three years, and and had sort mm-hmm. of like a mental crisis, and then the awakening of this uh, this connection with the divine. And what's interesting about this is that um, there aren't like clear prototypes for this kind of thing, this like peasant healing woman in um, in Japanese history, but there are pretty obvious analogs in Korea, in um, Okinawa even as as far as like Siberia. And so I think mm-hmm. the obvious implication is that there there's this buried stratum that's perhaps more continental uh, that's been continuously present in 
uh, Japanese religion. You know, presumably these these women in 19th century Japan had no uh, no direct contact with like the customs of uh, you know like Siberian shamans or anything like that. But it's it's just in in all likelihood there there had been um, these kinds of continental flavored local religious phenomena that just are are not or were not noticed by the uh, the court historians and sort of the um, you know, official guardians of, of sure. state religion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, more about this sort of like official state religion uh, thing is like uh, the emperor's role, like now, I guess, like right. nowadays, like in terms of like the constitution, I don't understand how that works. I'm not sure. Um, uh, it seems confusing to me. I mean, I, I sometimes think about like Canada's constitution in a way, like if you, if you sort of, trace down the official ideology that we're like sort of supposedly believe it's something that like God empowered this, uh, you know, these tribal leaders in ancient, uh, in England or something like that. And now the queen of Canada is also the queen of England. And, um, she has certain, she has like basically total power over us, but she's agreed to have a parliament and stuff like, you know, (laughs) so in Japan, it's it's Republic of Japan, right? Like, so is it is the, the the emperor still has a formal role, though, doesn't he? Or I, I would say that the emperor's formal role is more limited than that of the Queen of England. Uh, this is I, I'm honestly like much much less read on uh, you know anything to do with modern Shinto, but historically the emperor had always been sort of a cloistered figure. Like the emperor Meiji is probably the the most, or he probably had the most like personal influence rather than being dominated by a, a shogun or anyone else of sure. any emperor in like the last, you know, thousand years. And he was only, I think, photographed probably fewer than five times in his whole life. Okay. But, and so the big thing that they did, I, I think it was kind of ingenious in a way to, um, like the majority of Japanese had never heard the Showa Emperor Hirohito's voice before the uh, surrender was announced over the radio. And um, mm-hmm. you can you can find lots of reminiscences from people who were like, "Wow, I thought he would sound, you know, more divine." But mm-hmm. um, the the very fact that he's the the emperor is a little bit more of a public figure now and does you know does functions, I think has done a lot to diminish the um, uh, sort sort of like the mystical nature of of the chrysanthemum throne. Although I, I did read somewhere, I, I have no idea this is if this is true because I'm you know, uh, my Japanese simply isn't good enough. But I read that the humanity declaration that MacArthur had Hirohito give where he says, you know, um, I'm I'm not a god, I'm just an ordinary human being. I've read that the uh, Japanese vocabulary is a little bit obtuse such that they were uh, it, it, it supposedly maybe trying to give themselves a little bit of wiggle room like the average Japanese listener wouldn't even really know what exactly he was um, denying. Mm-hmm. Um and and like, you know, there there are there there are the ultra nationalists who want to restore the emperor to the throne. Actually, a few years ago, the head priest or or some high ranking priest at Yasukuni Shrine, where famously a number of uh, war criminals are enshrined, had to resign because Hirohito himself, after the end of the war, declined to visit the Yasukuni Shrine because he found it uh, distasteful. Um, and none of the subsequent emperors, uh, Heisei or now Reiwa, have have ever visited Yasukuni. And so uh, the, the head priest uh, said something to the effect that, um, the, you know, that the, the imperial family is now the enemy of Shinto or something like that. And 
and uh, had had to resign for that reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is there is there something like is there any sort of like formal relationship between the government and uh, Shinto or uh, Buddhism or any like is there is there some I'm not I mean you you might not know this part but is there like some clause in the constitution or something like that says like you know many countries have they don't they don't have like a formal state religion sometimes but sometimes they're kind of in between where it's like right. uh, we uh, we recognize the heritage or something like that kind of stuff like that I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm I'm not super um, familiar with the constitutional angle, but I think this is this has been a matter of some controversy as with the um, the Dijosai, the the sort of um, initial harvest festival for the latest emperor. I think they actually um, some group of private citizens actually brought a lawsuit against the professional prefectural governor of um, Kyoto because it was like, why is this guy using taxpayer money to um, to attend a, you know a thousand-year-old religious function and there so there's been some some push and pull in that and it's I, I don't know it's interesting like MacArthur in in trying to introduce uh, sort of a Western framework for separation of church and state in the post-war Constitution the joke goes that initially uh, everything was was written in terms that were were loose enough that for example hot springs were able to um, reclassify themselves as um, as is like churches or something on the basis that they were dedicated to the religious activity of helping men and women relax. And, and so there's been, uh, I, I think, a, a fair amount of um, continued conflict. And to my mind, you know, when uh, people on the left, when um, market liberals talk about the idea of maintaining an absolute separation between the activities of government and the activities of the economy, we, we sort of say, you know, oh, that's so naive. How could you ever expect that such a boundary would be impermeable? Um, there, there's always going to be some cross-contamination. And, but, but when people speak of, uh, you know, the separation of church and state, we tend to take for granted that that is a doable thing. And I wonder, because most Japanese and, and probably... Uh, people around the world who have an interest in Japanese culture would, I tend to think, agree that there is some kind of intangible value in preserving, like, you know, this ancient architecture and some of the ceremonies and, and rituals and things associated with it. And that takes a lot of money. And relegating that entirely to the, or primarily to the private sector, um, if anything, can can in some ways exacerbate the 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 problem that the che- the separation of church and state is supposed to solve, where um, you know you have the aristocrats or the wealthier whoever uh, I- effectively um, controlling the entire institution. But I I, I should mm-hmm. emphasize again that like modern Shinto institutions, I'm I'm just not as familiar with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all pretty interesting. Japan is so different, you know. Um, <laughs> I I. <laughs> MacArthur really did write the Constitution, huh? I, I was thinking about that, like, as a joke, that, like, him writing in, like, yeah, and all that, whatever, who do these people believe, right. that's, that's part of this, too. Uh, but I guess he actually did write it. Well, I, I guess, I, I don't think it was him personally, but I, I, I think he was interested in um, issues. And and I've seen it argued that basically, uh, you know, the, the U.S. authorities didn't fully comprehend... Um, 
as as you were sort of joking, like what what they were getting into, or the the degree of yeah. of, of sort of interpenetration. But it, it it does have to be said that the nationalist concept of of Shinto as this uh, as this pure thing that was only temporarily tainted by by other Asian influences is um, is is clearly bunk. Um, and that's well. It, and the interesting thing, though, is to this day, a majority of Japanese of all ages, and particularly those who were born after the war years and the the sort of attempt to turn Shinto into a state creed, um, a, a majority of Japanese still have not heard or are not familiar with the term Shinto. Uh, and I, I think mm-hmm. my subjective impression is that some of this Chinese vocabulary, like the Toe in Shinto, way or realm of of the divine, is um, the same as the the Tao or Tao in Taoism. And, really interesting. Um, so it has, it has somewhat the same, like, the the indigenous Japanese reading of the same characters would be kami no michi, and um, and so I think that as a Chinese word, it has somewhat the same feeling that like Latin loan words do in English, where they feel like German words feel earthier and and Latin can feel more technical. So it's I, I, I guess yeah. maybe the equivalent of coming up to an evangelical and and being like, you know, do you believe in dispensationalism? And um, right. so uh, this is this might be a dumb question, but uh, is the toe the same as the word for uh, party, like political party, or is that a different toe? That's a that's a different one, okay. a- as in like Jimin toe. Yeah, I um that that is a different, but uh, yeah, I I think that there's you know in in part the idea of. The, the the idea of the Japanese as being concerned with the practical rather than the intellectual is in part sort of a self-conscious attempt to, um, you know, contrast themselves with the Chinese. Like, well, we may not have your, your sophisticated philosophy, but we we always do the right thing. We're, we're like pure and sincere and so forth. Um, actually, mm-hmm. I, there, one of the uh, Kokugaku or national learning authors argued that Confucius had to invent an intellectual morality because Chinese people don't have an interior conscience. <laughs> but, um, uh. but uh, so it's, you know, th- there's a little bit of contrivance there, but I-, I think it is striking that you see among a lot of um, scholars. Yeah. Just an emphasis on um, the, the ordinary process of worship, the doing um, Yoshi, uh, Yoshi Shinto is, is probably the first, the, the the first like entity that number one that or that both described itself using the word Shinto and aspired to um, embrace all of the uh, you know all of the shrines in the country and and to unify them into into something like a religion um, in in this on on the same scale as Buddhism and it, it's interesting to look at their their literature because you you see ideas like well, you know, Shinto gods receive offerings of uh, cold water and the Buddhas receive offerings of tea. Tea represents water that's been modified by boiling and, and pouring over leaves. And so that must represent uh, the enlightenment or the wisdom that comes from uh, applied effort and practice, whereas the cold water offered to the Shinto deities must represent, um, you know, something that was originally pure. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and similarly... The, uh, you know, just just the idea inherited from esoteric Buddhism that um, if you say a prayer by a particular patriarch or a particular Buddha, it's as though that person is speaking through you. And um, there's there's in 
I guess like Taoism never had an institutional presence as such in Japan in the way that Buddhism did. But the um, the Japanese inherited from Taoist cosmology the idea that um, you know the Tao it divides into yin and yang, and then in order to provide sort of like a dynamic space for interaction between yin and yang, heaven and earth, that's that's sort of the role that man plays. Um, it's almost like a like a you know like a tall tree standing out in a field that can sort of provide a way for the the electrical charge to pass down from heaven to earth and um so in in yoshi shinto there's this idea of like you know man man is defined by his ability to show reverence through ritual through uh acts of charity and so forth and through through doing mm-hmm. that's pretty interesting there's a, a couple of things there that you said that reminded me of things in islam and it's not necessarily that Oh, like it's the same or something, but it just kind of like rung a bell for me. Mm-hmm. So uh, choose, you know, the water and the tea and, and the differences there. It, that just reminded me of a, it was either a dream that the prophet had or he ascended to heaven and then this occurred there. Uh, but he was offered by an angel. Um, in one hand, the angel had uh, a vessel of milk and in the other hand, a vessel of wine and the prophet chose milk. And that's commonly interpreted to be choosing purity, mm. you know. Uh, and so, like this, and he's being given this religion in a sense, you know. I think this is when he ascended to heaven, because that's also where he negotiated the number of prayers and all this sort of thing. So I, I believe that that's sort of like the religion is pure, milk is pure. There's that sense of like the water that you were describing. Yeah. Um shoujo or, or purity um, and, and other values like, uh, you know, sim- sincerity, simplicity, I, I think those are ones that receive a lot of emphasis in, um, in, in Shinto and also in Islam. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But yeah, I don't know. I, uh, this, uh, this sounds interesting. Uh, I, I like the, you know, we have this concept of an organized religion and this seems to operate uh, without a lot of those trappings and without a lot of the structures of that. And, uh, the you know you've described how buddhism and other traditions have kind of like interpenetrated with shinto that's always really interesting to see i think um and and particularly i i think that um you know there's no such thing as a a perfectly tolerant religion and practice because obviously religion has to be carried out by imperfect humans but Mahayana Buddhism, which is the variety that's practiced in Japan, is like if you've ever met super serious white Buddhists who will be like, well, Buddhism isn't a religion. It's a way of life. And it's like open to rational questioning and stuff. They tend to hate um, Mahayana Buddhism because it's a little bit more it's it's, um, you know, it's it's more religious, uh, more more evocative of like sort of colorful peasant festivities and, and things like that. But there's there's this mm-hmm. notion of um, of the ultimate unattainable truth being a sort of non-dual meaning. There well so there, there's like the absolute truth of the Buddhist Dharma and then there's the provisional truth which you you could almost if you were being cute you could call dialectical because it's like the truth as subject to competing social forces or uh, as as appropriate for a particular place and time and mm-hmm. um, and and this became. A, a way of, of reconciling the obvious differences between Buddhism as it existed in places like Japan and China and Korea and Buddhism in India is, is you just say, you know, well, why did, why did the old masters do things differently than the new masters? Well, you know, if a duck is cold, it dives under the water. If a rooster is cold, it flies up a tree. 
so there's there there's you know there there is a little bit of latent condescension I think toward toward the indigenous deities as being inferior to the Buddhas, but also a certain degree of accommodation because um, all of the the sort of socially conditioned ways that people express the truth it's you know ultimately the um, the contradictions exist because of language or because of the limitations of human perception and and um, uh, so there, there's the apparent duality between Buddhism and Shinto is uh, is really illusory, is what the argument would go. Sure, yeah, more social and political, perhaps. Right. Um, yeah, I, I remembered what I was trying to say earlier uh, when you were describing the uh, conceptualization of man as kind of a conduit between heaven and earth, right, and uh, being like a tree, you know. Um, in Islam, um, or actually in the Quran, man is referred to as a khalifa in the same way. Like that's the same word oh. for like caliphate. It's the same. It's the same word. It's the same concept. It means like someone who is sent like as an envoy, or as like uh, I think jurisprudent is a word I've heard before. Uh, someone who kind of like is not the the sovereign himself, but acts on his behalf, kind of like as a caretaker for for the the true ruler right um i don't know i just saw some resonance there that is interesting to me i i guess that does remind me speaking of um that that intermediary role i should note that um although we tend to think of polytheism in relation to like the very uh sort of lavish images of of roman or greek deities uh, shinto isn't completely aniconic but historically um there are there are different objects. They're they're now called goshintai that are inside the shrines, um, that are uh, thought of I think as as sort of like temporary abodes or like a foothold for you know this divine force to inhabit temporarily. Um, actually, John K. Nelson's book uh, "Year in the Life of a Shinto Shrine," based on field research he did in uh, Sui Shrine in Nagasaki, he spoke to one of the priests who said, um, you know, one of the goshintai at the shrine like when they transfer it to a temporary facility for, for festivals. Um, he said it's, it's about the, the shape and the size and the weight of a Christian sculpture. And he speculated that uh, perhaps, um, you know, a Christian church had been looted during one of the periods of persecution and they were, they appropriated a, a cool statue of the Virgin Mary or somebody <laughs> else to yeah. um, enlist in this capacity. But that's, um, oh, I, <laughs> Yeah, I guess I should say in, in that connection, this, this isn't really related to what you were saying before, but um, there's modeled, I think, on the procession of uh, the deity um, Yahata no Kami from Kyushu in the south up to the imperial capital in Nara. There's this tradition at um, festival times of removing the um, the Goshintai, the, the temporary abode of the deity, and you do this behind, like, you know, folding screens to obscure everything from the sight of the public and they put them in a a temporary abode called a mikoshi which are it like sort of like a palanquin and then um the neighborhood men um hoist them on their shoulders and just like tear ass up and down the streets of the town it's it's actually for whatever reason considered um obligatory to jostle the uh the palanquin somewhat you know out having fun let him know who's boss i guess <laughs> yeah i i it's it's interesting i um i'm not sure what exactly the the rationale is but uh they get to to i i, I guess in a manner of speaking go out and uh have fun sort of dance with the 
uh, general population in the middle of these festivals. Hmm. Um, so, Sean, have you been to Japan? I can't remember if I asked you this a long time ago, but like, uh, have you been to Japan ever? I, I have. Yeah, I've I've never lived there. Sure. Yeah. Um, what What is like, your yeah. uh, fascination with Japan? It seems like you know quite a bit. You're you know you got the anime picture <laughs> right. on Twitter. Yeah, I. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've tried to familiarize myself. I was I was sort of fascinated by the great works of Japanese culture, you know, Genji Monogatari and Ugetsu Monogatari and Bake Monogatari. But um, going over there, it is like the, the there's the, the sort of particularity of Shinto, the, the fact that or the part of it that has to do with the, the Japanese landscape. And it was it was very interesting to see the mountains because I grew up in um, the Elk Mountains and on Colorado's West Slope and these these very jagged pinnacles like the Rockies and um, the uh, the sacred mountains that I'd, I'd read described so much when you see them they're much smaller and they tend to be covered in vegetation I think there's a maybe mm. a connection to um, fertility or life force or something these these sort of gentle conical mounds that are covered in green but they really are quite an impressive presence because um, I, I, I think precisely because Whereas a, a mountain like the Rockies, you know, they're, they're always a little bit different, distant. And if you actually climb them, then they gradually like decompose into a pile of rocks. Whereas with uh, these, these, these vegetative mounds, um, it, it's like you can almost measure their height in relation to the nearby trees. And so you have a more definite sense of scale and they, they sort of huh. loom over you in a more immediate way. And I was uh, very enchanted with, you know, coming from a rather dry climate, um, uh, in, I was enchanted with the the massy dark greenness of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, as as far as the origin of my own interest, I you, you know there there are different um, everything feels so self referential. Like you see a film by Kurosawa, I saw Rashomon it when I was a teenager or whatever, and then um, that leads to you seeing other Japanese films, and then in those films you see the the representations of painting or, or theater or religion or whatever else. Um, and, and I also, my, my actual education is in uh, linguistics and I had uh, uh, friends who taught English over there. An interesting thing. One of my friends who um, lived in rural Japan in Shikoku um, said that it was always interesting to talk to people at shrines because if you ask them like, who are you here worshiping? Um, she said, the most common answer you get is just Kamisama, um, which means the Lord God. That's the same name that like Japanese speaking Christians or Muslims would use of, of the Abrahamic God. And, um, I tested Mm -hmm. this out and, and yeah, even some of the shrine like personnel, like the shrine maidens and people will, will just say sort of Kamisama, um, possibly an answer, you know, maybe hoping to blow off a foreigner or, or not give something super specific. Sure, sure. Um, the the interviews you read in books like uh, Nelson's Year of in the Life of a Shinto Shrine that I I read earlier, there's an interesting kind of, um, you, you know, uh, people people will express sort of half belief, you know, like I believe in God or the gods or something, but um, I don't necessarily know about the particular legends or or practices at our shrine, but it's something to do which is an attitude I admire. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, so how long were you in Japan for when you visited? Um, I've spent, um, I've been a few times. I uh, I think the longest I spent okay. was like um, uh, three or four weeks once. Oh, wow. And it's, yeah. Um, you know, there's so much just in, in kind of the, 
the Kansai, the heartland around uh, like Kyoto and Nara, there's there's so much to do and so much to look at. Um, that's where the Issei Shrine is, the the shrine of the sun goddess, which is actually reconstructed every every twenty years. They they have like adjacent sites um, within the shrine, and one of them is empty at even any given time. And so every twenty years, they uh, tear it down and and construct a new shrine at whichever site was unoccupied previously. Oh, crop rotation. Right, exactly. It's it's interesting because if you read the oldest text, it's clear that the tutelary god of the imperial house was originally probably Omononushi, who's associated with Mount Miwa in Nara. But um, at some point, uh, some emperor or other said that he was, he was getting a little bit antsy sitting um, in the capital, which I think at that point was Hase, um, with, you know, multiple powerful deities. And so he said, you know, we have to relocate one of, one of the major deities outside of the Imperial Palace. And from, uh, from that, they used to rotate the capital when the emperor died as well. But from that, that capital, um, Issei Bay to the east was where the sun appeared to rise out of the bay. And so they, they, um, relocated, and, and the story goes that they also, um, that the grain goddess uh, Toyuke was was also sent there as, as just sort of, you know, a friend to keep uh, Amaterasu company in Issei. Yeah, I mean, the closest I got is on the way back from Shanghai. I flew, they, uh, they, they like flew close to Japan, I guess. Like we were over Japan and flew close to Tokyo Bay, I guess, and like... Uh, I got to see like the lights of the city and right. stuff, but like, uh, I think that's, that's about it. That's, that's what, it. So uh, I, I'm yeah. curious, what did, did you sure. see like, um, particular religious sites in, in Shanghai? I'm, I'm not very familiar with Chinese religion at all, apart from Taoism. Uh, yeah, I saw one Buddhist temple, uh, in Shanghai, the uh, Jing'an mm. temple. Um, uh, I saw a few different, uh, like gardens i'm not sure i'm not sure really how the religion works for that but i think i think they were like uh buddhist mm-hmm. gardens and things like that like uh in suzhou um and uh, i did see some different like temples and stuff in beijing and um I, I you know i don't i don't know a lot about uh chinese buddhism or anything like that so uh it didn't really you know and i was also like a very hardcore atheist right. at the time so it was kind of lost on me a lot of that stuff but I know it was interesting, and uh, yeah. So I also went to actually uh, I went to a, a temple. I can't remember. I can't remember what it's called now, but like uh, oh Putoshan, I think it's called or something like that. It's it's off the coast of uh, uh, Zhejiang. I think it's it's called uh, the province, and uh, it is like a island of uh, Buddhist temples, and um, it was really interesting because you know you see all the monks. Mm-hmm walking around and selling like uh, stuff and uh, very very ornate kind of temple stuff and uh, um, we stayed the night there which was actually quite nice and uh, um, or or maybe like it, we got to it by boat and stuff but it was, I don't know it was interesting you know this giant kind of complex of all right. these different temples and stuff. What, out so, of curiosity what yeah. were they selling? So like uh, they would make like uh, cloth bags and stuff like that and like little trinkets and stuff and um, I think that was sort of like a, you know, the temples were right. making some income and stuff off the tourists. And a lot of people I know uh, that were there bought like uh, cloth bags off them that had little Buddhist uh, mm. symbols on them and stuff. And, and uh, 
And also like uh, wraps, I guess, like wrap dresses or something like that, like a you know like a clothing and uh, yeah, it's just stuff like that. I don't know. It was interesting. Um, yeah, that. Yeah. So th- there's there's sort of as I said before a, that that dimension to Shinto as well, selling you know scrolls or um, or amulets or or other things. Actually, um, the 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 god Inari Okami. Um, it's a friend of mine joked watch watch the prices on the vending machines as you go up Mount Inari because it, you go up through these these red gates and um, it's 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 a mountain that's ostensibly so sacred that there can't be a, an outhouse or anything like that but um, there are vending machines and uh, as as mm-hmm. as you go from the bottom all the way to the top at, at the top the price is like triple what it is at the bottom or something like that. Sure. And yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and, and there are, are sort of like commercial districts nearby, particularly with with Fushimi Inari. Um, it's apparently a point of of irritation with uh, Inari priests that Inari is not Inari is god of foxes. He uses foxes as messengers. He's not a fox god, but uh, they've um, in in spite of this, they uh, they sell quite a bit of uh, fox merchandise. You know, plushies and things. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure, that's his right. You know. <laughs> If he's the, <laughs> the Lord of Foxes or whatever, yeah, it's the connection is is a little bit obscure to me. Um, I I think that there Caroline Smyers. I, I I guess I should uh, mention for anyone who's who's interested in sort of that angle, wrote a book called The Fox and the Jewel that deals with um, the the Inari cult and its its different symbols. And oh, interesting thing though is is like I remember once making the mistake of uh, going on like. Google reviews because the idea of leaving a Google review for a like a religious site was so funny to me, and I saw some mm-hmm. negative reviews of Fushimi Inari from Japanese people who were saying like way too many Chinese and Korean tourists these days, but, which is which is interesting <laughs> mm-hmm. because like the um, the Fushimi Inari shrine was originally the tutelary shrine of Hata clan, which comes from the continent. I think they're of possibly of Korean or or Chinese extraction, uh, so. You know, lots of lots of links that have been severed, and we can only pray that in the next century, uh, maybe there will be some kind of, um, you know, more positive reappropriation of these traditions. Sure, sure, yeah, 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 for sure. Did you study Japanese history or something? You know a lot about this stuff. Oh, I I'm just a hobbyist reader. Um, yeah, cool. But thank you. Hmm. Yeah, this is yeah, this well, is really was, interesting. Um, Japan has always been an interesting place to me. Um, it just kind of seems like they've been doing, or they were doing their own thing for so long, mm-hmm. and then they, uh, you know, came onto the scene real late. So it's like uh, they're so idiosyncratic right. and unusual. It's it's a cool place. I've never been. Although actually, no, that's not true. I, I got Don beat on that because I actually uh, made a connecting flight in Tokyo. So. I see. Where where were you? Yeah, flying score to? one for Tom. Uh, I think this was flying from Bangkok to the U.S. Ah, interesting. Well, I, yeah. I know I've noticed now that um, in the well, I, I guess I you know it's not like I've been enough times to say how recent a development this is, but there are like facilities for for Muslim tourists to pray. Um, I I think they're trying to be a more more kind of accommodating of international tourism in that way. Sure. Yeah. I, I saw some like it was a vice documentary or something on YouTube about like a Japanese imam and sort of like the, you know, what is his daily life like? What's it like trying to organize 
like a prayer group, mm-hmm. you know, in Japan and everything. And uh, it seems like it was like maybe roughly half of the people there, half of the Muslims were Japanese and the other half were, you know, foreigners right. of whatever extraction. I, it didn't seem like there was any specific like community like a muslim like i know in in korea there's a fair number of turks so like the majority of muslims there are turkish i I didn't get the sense in japan that there was anything like that yeah i i guess red um immigration has sort of been a red line for them for a long time you do you do see turkish people in um in tokyo but uh the country is is like overwhelmingly uh japanese so, but I, I think there were actually before, um, even before the modern era, there was like a small population of um, Japanese Jews, and um, hmm. I don't remember the circumstances under which they settled. But it, it always made me wonder about the difficulties of keeping like kosher or halal in um, in yeah. a country where it's it's like so, you know, uh, pork and eel and other things are so pervasive. Yeah, for sure. And there's no, uh, like, vegetarian tradition in, like, any of those local religions or anything, is there? I mean, um, Buddhism, like, Buddhist temple cuisine is supposed guess, to be yeah, vegetarian. Buddhism, yeah. But it's, it's like, um, in, in practice, the degree to which that's kept, I, I think, is pretty variable. And, and I, I have been told that it's extremely difficult to be a vegetarian in Japan, unless you're just living at a monastery. Yeah, like, even mm-hmm. a bowl of soup, you're, you're getting pork in the broth you know right uh, but there there is this interesting strand of of buddhism in japan where well and, and this is mainly associated with um amida or, or so-called pure land buddhism uh, the notion that um uh mankind's karma has declined to the point that it's it's no longer even possible for people to be devout enough to you know or or summon the concentration necessary to become uh enlightened or or to engage in meditation and um yeah. and and so there's this which exists also in 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 theravadan buddhism in india but the the idea that like the buddha of the past has been gone for over a thousand years now and um the buddha of the future is uh, you know millions of years off and so what does one do in the meantime and and uh, uh this particularly in japanese in japan this this notion of oh you know we're this uh, this this pitiful little people. We don't really have the spiritual capacities for meditation, so we're just gonna trust in in the Buddha of Infinite Light and to reincarnate us somewhere where it's it's just easier to be a good Buddhist. And and that's part of the context, mm-hmm. I think, for the idea of the Shinto deities. A, a phrase from Taoism, Wako Dojin, meaning um, dim your light, mingle with dust, in interpreted to the the idea that like the Buddhas are so pure that they have to. Um, come to us in a in a reduced form although over the course of japanese history you have you have different groups contesting this and saying well no actually the buddhas are manifestations of the shinto gods rather than the other way around Mm -hmm. sure all right well i guess that will uh wrap it up for that part of the podcast and we'll jump into a few questions here to close it out so let's see uh this one is from funko fred are those of us on the hashtag who care grind victims of the fluoride stare? So Sean, you know, you know about who care, right? So. Dave's thing, his movement that's taken over the world. Yes. Peace be upon him. 
I, I, yeah, I don't know. I guess we're all victims of the fluoride stare. I don't know. No, I, I feel like, uh, you know, the, the who care, uh, it's like you listen to something and then go, I don't care kind of thing. So it's not really fluoride stare. Fluoride stare is more like unthinking agreement kind of thing, you know? Like it's more like being pulled around by the nose or something like that kind of thing. It's not like, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I think the who care is more like a skeptical, just in it for the bands thing. Sure. So. Yeah. Uh, the next question here from not self, what's your favorite poem? Let's see. I'm not really a big poetry guy. Typically. Um, uh, I, I don't know. what do you got? I guess I would say, uh, um, Langston Hughes's poem, I think it's called something like, uh, I too sing America or something like that. I sing America, something like that. Right. And, uh, so, um, I don't know. I, I really like that one. So, yeah, there's, there's ones that I like. I, they just don't kind of like stick in my mind. The only one that really like comes to mind is, uh, one that I read in high school, which is like the, uh, Alf, Alfred J. Prufrock poem. Uh, by Thomas Elliot. Um, mm-hmm. I remembered that one just uh, really struck me. I really liked that one. Um, but I don't know sure. if that would be like my favorite. It's just the one that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. I um, I found a haiku that I've always liked. It says, A calm moon, walking home, the gay boy frightened by the howling of foxes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good times. I, that's that's actually by uh, Matsuo Basho, who um, uh, more more famous for his uh, uh, you know the old pond frog jumps in the sound of water. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, okay, so we got a question here from Born to Ready. Uh, are these people actually descended from Alexander the Great? Uh, and we got a link to the Wikipedia for the Kalash people. I think these are. Okay, it says they're in Pakistan. They're a Dardic Indo-Aryan indigenous people. Um, if these are the people I'm thinking of, I'm not going to read this whole thing now, but uh, there are, are groups of people in Pakistan and Afghanistan that claim lineage back to Alexander the Great. And I think there's actually some genetic evidence that sort of shows this to have some merit too. Um, but I think it's mainly based on the fact that they're like lighter skinned and have like a have blue eyes and stuff like that Uh, but Mm -hmm. the idea i guess is that alexander the great's army like he left some soldiers there and they kind of settled in and assimilated into the local people and stuff sure so yeah i don't know take their word for it sure oh sami uh says nope (laughs) (laughs) he's he's from Kashmir. he's he's also uh so i don't know if this is some kind of balkan like <laughs> style <laughs> ethnic rivalry thing sure uh greveling says how about these people and he refers to the macedonians and sami also says no so all right <laughs> okay fair enough um all right okay so maximo Roboto here says don i once asked you about newfoundland being a victim of canadian imperialism and deserving nato intervention on its behalf turns out this was a historical common turn view and so we have oh really yeah we have something here it's like a 
screenshot of a book or something. Uh, it says, Comintern information material on Canada reaffirmed the Dominion to be an imperialist country of secondary rank, possessing its own independent imperialist ambition. Canada had colonial interests in Latin America and Newfoundland, Newfoundland, uh, represented by the Royal Bank of Canada, and the bank was symbolic of Canada's imperialist goals and the power of finance capital. Yeah, this ended up being a big uh, debate in the 70s uh, in Canada. Not Newfoundland, because it became part of Canada and stuff, but like uh, um, the debate being that like whether or not Canada was imperialist in its own right or subordinate to the United States imperialism. Um, because there's a lot of Canadian nationalists that wanted to do things like, you know, uh, sever trade relations with the United States and all that kind of stuff. Anyways, and their, their whole thing was, uh, you know, we'll get rid of, uh, the Americans and stuff, and then we'll be able to build our own national industry up and stuff and stuff instead of just, you know, being like loggers and oil companies and all this kind of stuff. Um, so that, you know, that was sort of the nationalist angle. And so a lot of the left, that was sort of their default position, especially like the reformist left was like, oh, we're going to get rid of uh, um, the United States and then we'll, you know, build up this uh, global power that will, you know, benefit the world kind of thing. And uh, even like the liberal sort of mainstream Trudeau stuff talked about like, you know, like a basically like a third option or like, uh, you know, pivoting away from the United States in certain ways and stuff. And then, uh, you know, the more radical debates were like Canada is imperialist in its own right. Although it's funny because the Communist Party eventually really leaned hard towards the nationalist position in a lot of ways um, as part of sort of their like anti-monopoly stuff, like we're going to get rid of these American monopolies and everything. Um, yeah. I know, I know people in Newfoundland that, uh, you know, especially conservatives uh, that – um, thought think that Newfoundland should have uh, stayed independent, and uh, um, there isn't really much of an uh, independence movement there now. But like, uh, you know, there's people that think that there was a missed opportunity there. So, yeah. out of curiosity, yeah. I have a question. If that's okay, yeah. What, please. what is the Canadian equivalent of like, uh, you know, the Latin American um, Yankee as a term of disparagement for Americans? <laughs> that's a good question oh, i don't know um i mean people do say yankee people do say yankee but like a um people just say i guess like american or or uh i don't know there's no i'm not sure i'm not sure do, really. do they say yank yeah. like brits will say yank. yeah we'll say yanks yeah, yeah. we'll say yanks sometimes or say yankee but like uh um no i, I think part of it is that like Canada is so close to the United States culturally now that, like, I don't know. It does. It seems silly sometimes when American people kind of um, are anti-American, kind of like in an extreme way or something like that. I don't know. It just ends up sounding a bit silly because, I mean, it sounds sillier as time goes on. In the '80s and stuff, it was this was a very big issue, like all the anti-free trade stuff and that, and then uh, around NAFTA and stuff, and then. Once the liberals signed on to NAFTA, after they were elected on the platform of getting rid of it, um, the debate sort of faded from the mainstream. So, yeah. Hmm. So now and now more and more like it, it seems weird to kind of get, you know, to be too critical of the Americans in different ways just because uh, unless it's like, you know, 
it was through like Trump or something, you know, like being anti-Trump or something. So I saw a protest. Uh, someone took pictures of a protest of a town about like an hour north of me where uh, people were uh, chanting or like they had signs or something like that said that said, let's go, Brandon, which is like really sad, like Canadians being conservatives who hate Joe Biden or something like that or, you know, like it's like. I don't know. Yeah. There's not much. I don't know. I totally missed the boat on what that was about or what that means or whatever. It just means fuck Joe Biden. Yeah, there was like a. I yeah, I don't know. I I feel that the um, the right is sort of the the maiming ability is is sort of deteriorating. It's there's nothing that's as punchy as like oh bungler, but there was um sure, like yeah. a football match or something <laughs> where the crowd was cha- was uh chanting fuck Joe Biden and the uh, the TV announcer said like. Oh, I, I think I hear them saying, let's go, Brandon. Oh, okay. And so uh, conservatives, yeah, it was, I think it was like a, a NASCAR thing or something. And like, uh, or, uh, and yeah, like the, the woman um, said that. And so now people, it, but there's like t-shirts everywhere and signs and stuff. I don't know. It's very sad. So songs too. And, you know, just like, uh, I don't know. And it's sort of like, you know, it's a, it's like an inside joke, but it's pretty, uh, I don't know. It's, it's pretty lame. So yeah, it is kind of lame, yeah. but, uh, you so, know, like Mao said, let a thousand flowers bloom, you know? Yeah. hundred. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Well, why don't we wrap it up there, I guess. And, uh, yeah, sure. That, that um, was interesting, sure. man. I, I, I could yeah. go on, I could just listen to you talk about this stuff for, uh, forever sean that was that's interesting <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm really glad we finally got you on sean and that was uh, that was fun so i'm glad that you uh, were able to i really appreciate that yeah. thank you guys both cool yeah cool um yeah guys so if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like a another uh, <laughs> i don't want to do this anymore if you like this episode and you want a weekly episode of you can't win uh subscribe to our patreon and you'll get that as well as access to our discord where you can send in questions that we'll ask on the episodes yeah thanks for listening and we'll catch you next week